You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, Episode 66, brought to you by Bessie Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Hello, it's Greg Otten here with the Maritime Gardening Podcast. It's July 18th, 2018, and uh, I'm, we've had an in- intense rain here the other day, and it gave me an idea for something to wrap an episode around. So stay with me for that. I'm going to talk about rain and mulch and the connection between those two things and why it's so important to have a mulch in your garden and why uh, rain is so important to your garden. I mean, we're all gardeners. We know rain's important. And if you've been listening to me, you know mulch mulch is important. But I'm going to talk a bit about that, about how they work together. Uh, I've been using this heavy mulch system for a long time or for a good while, but still there's years where I'm a bit... Uh, lazy in getting my mulch applied. Uh, I put a good mulch on in the fall and then I uh, plant things in the spring and there's always parts of my garden that just have not been properly mulched and there's a really good reason to not let that happen. It's a huge advantage to have the mulch on there. So I'm going to talk a little bit, bit more about that as the episode goes on. But first off, I'm going to talk about the state of the garden, just so people can compare notes. If you're uh, in the, the local area near near me in the Maritimes, or if you're in a similar climate, or if you're just curious because you're somewhere warmer or colder and you want to compare notes. Uh, as I've said many times, I'm in Zone 6A, but I'm in a Zone 6A just speaks to how cold it can get in the winter. It doesn't speak to how warm it is in the summer. <laughs> so uh, there's lots of people in zone 6A or zone 5A or even zone 4, like my mother who lives in Edmonton, uh, who have plants that are further along than mine because it's been hotter for longer with more sun. Anyway, for the sake of comparison, the sake of just typical gardener curiosity, I'll tell you where things are. So uh, peas, my peas are in full production mode. I got two varieties. I like to plant snap peas. I don't like uh, sugar, uh, I don't I don't like snow peas. I find they there's a very narrow window of time when you can pick them, and they're I mean if you can pick them at just the right time, they're a wonderful nice pea, but they're not very forgiving. They might have a two or three or four day window, and then they start to become woody and not so good. Whereas a snap pea, sugar snap pea. Uh, well, you can leave those on the vine a week or more, and they're still good. They're still juicy. So I'm more in favor of the sugar snap pea, and that's what I've got. And I've got uh, really short uh, Alaskan bush pea types that are only two feet high, which are producing well. But I've also got the, the, the taller kind that get to five and six feet tall, and uh, they are producing and they're flowering. And these are peas I planted back in April, and they're just flowering now. So that's the peas. Anyway, I'm in full production mode. We ate a, a whole bowl of them tonight with our supper, and uh, they're producing at a rate where I can pretty much collect a bowl full every three days or so. Uh, rhubarb. Rhubarb are huge, and I got all the rhubarb I could possibly want. Uh, <laughs> I wish I had more friends that liked rhubarb because I could give lots away. Um, my lettuce. The lettuce I planted in March under plastic is now bolting, and it's pretty much done and the second wave that I planted in Mayish is coming in. Spinach is done and there's no point in dealing with spinach. Uh, I'll p- probably direct seed some in 
uh, early August to try to get a fall crop, but for right now, uh, spinach is all done. And I've even did a video very recently on how to cook bolted spinach. If your spinach is still is bolting, um, you can eat it, but it's really not much of a salad green. You'd probably want to cook it, and you can make uh, many different ways to cook up bolted spinach. Uh, check out my YouTube channel if you want to see me in my kitchen doing some cooking. Uh, carrots, the carrots are, carrots and parsnips are at that stage now where they need to be thinned. Um, the carrots, I like to wait a good while before I thin my carrots because uh, I want that thinning activity to be productive activity. That is to say, when I'm thinning the carrots, I'm collecting food. When I'm thinning the carrots, I'm pulling out carrots that I can eat to make space for other carrots that are going to be long and big and good for storage later on. So right now, middle of July, that's, for me, that's about when it's a good time to start thinning carrots. And the same thing I would say for parsnips. It's worthwhile to thin them now if you're trying to get them to be a good size. I mean, having I would rather have half as many big ones than twice as many small ones because they're just easier to deal with, right? You're, you're less peeling, less processing, and all sort of stuff. And the big ones just keep better, generally speaking. Um, so... Because if they start to go bad, you know, if you if you store a root vegetable, maybe it goes a bit bad on the outside. You can cut that bad part off. But if it's a skinny little thing, um, there's not much to cut off. You know, you're not left with much. So they just seem to last better if they're big. So thin them out. If you've got those things, carrots, parsnips, start thinning. Uh, same thing with beets, right? My beets are great right now. I think I've even got some that are large enough to pickle. Um, but it's it's the right time to start thinning them. So. Every time I'm collecting greens, we eat cooked greens every other day, if not every day, <laughs> as often as possible. And when I'm going around collecting kale and Swiss chard, I give my beans a good look over. And anything that doesn't look like it's going to amount to much and it's in the way of something else, I just pick the whole plant. And if the beet is any size, I can cook that, but it's mainly the beet greens. Kale is a harvestable size right now. For cut and come again, right? You take a leaf off each plant. Because I've got two four by ten beds of kale, a leaf off a leaf off each plant is a salad bowl full of kale. Uh, I like to cook my kale, but however you like to cook it. Uh, anyway, that's where I am with my kale. It's it's now of a size where I can really you know harvest a good meal of it whenever I want. And it's just going to get better as the summer goes on. I anticipate. And both varieties of kale, I have in my garden a sort of uh, Russian Siberian kale look good, and also that variety that I got from Bessie Seeds, the uh, what was it called, Black Beauty, I believe, um, which is a a type of lacinato kale that's been developed for growing in colder regions. Uh, some of those are looking really good right now, and it's the best success I've ever had with a lacinato type kale here in my location. So if you're somewhere with uh, Kind of lousy growing conditions that might be an option for you if, especially if you like that kind of kale uh, if you don't know much about kale there's lots of different varieties but for me the lacinato or some people call it dinosaur kale uh, for a cooked kale I, I don't really care much for kale period as a salad green or a smoothie or something like that but when it comes to cooked for me the lacinato kale is the gold standard of tasty kale although i like scotch curly kale and i like Red Russian kale and side. I like them all, but that Lacinato variety is just a wonderful. 
Uh, also, what's coming in well, uh, got some kohlrabi greens that seem to be coming in well. And an interesting side note this year, thus far, I really haven't seen, I've seen like one or two white fly. And it's still a bit early, it's only the middle of July. But I haven't seen much at all. Now, I don't know if, if it's because that particular pest, you know, the cabbage moth, the white flies, these white white butterflies that show up in your garden, they lay eggs on things like kale or collard greens or uh, kohlrabi or um, broccoli or, uh, you know, things things of that nature, broccoli rob, rapini, all that, that variety of kind of plant um, that are all related to mustard. Uh, it lays eggs on those things, and the caterpillars that that come out of those eggs just devastate your plants. And I've had problems with those year after year after year after year. Well, last year, I hit my whole garden with this BTK stuff that was provided by one of my sponsors, Safers. It's a it's a bacteria, and it really it's a bacteria that doesn't bother humans or anything else, but it kills the hell out of caterpillars. And I don't know if I knocked back the actual population in my area or if it's just a a, good, a particularly good year where that pest is minimal or if it's just still too early. I really can't say. But really, there's not a huge situation. I mean, I, I haven't had to spray or treat or do anything with any of my kale now for weeks. That's snow slug bait. I haven't had to use the, uh, the Endol, that pyrethrin-based stuff that I use sometimes. And I haven't bothered with the BTK because I haven't seen any issues. The only thing I've really seen is uh, it appears to be some uh, aphids are trying to set something up in my parsnips that I've let go to seed. There's these little cocoon type things showing up there. I should make a video of that. That's an interesting topic. All right, so that's kale. Uh, beans. I got no flowers, but I've got beans, and they're they're coming along great. Um, but that's the way I want it, right? I want to have eat peas until they're coming out your ears, and then once the peas start to give up, then your beans start to come in. And you eat beans, so you're just about sick of them. Um, zucchini are beginning to flower. Uh, they've come in really. It's been a remarkably hot here for this area. Uh, you know, hotter than it's been for quite a while. Last night it was like one of the few nights of the year I said, boy, I wish we had air conditioning here. That, that's very rare where I live. Um, and we even had a few days up to 30 and then all those heat-loving plants love that stuff. So the zucchini's coming in great. And all my squashes, uh, generally speaking, are coming in really well. Um, and including the cucumbers. My cucumbers aren't really flowering yet. They're a little bit behind the zucchini, but they look healthy and they look strong. I don't know if they'll be producing as early as the cucumbers I had last year because we had that insane frost period in the middle of uh, June this year. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. It's amazing. If you get a lot of heat and a lot of humidity and some ideal conditions, things can come in pretty fast. And if your plants are healthy and they've got good roots and you've got good soil, who knows what will happen. Um, my grapes, I don't know if I made videos of this, but during that insane frost period, my grapes, all the leaves died. And uh, which was a bit of a problem because I use those grape leaves for doing some of my pickling. I, I almost never get grapes off my grape plants because the birds eat them and stuff like that. But I do use the the leaves for pickling. If you don't know anything about pickling and adding things like there's certain things you can add to pickles: grape leaves, bay leaves, uh, certain kinds of oak leaves, uh, and there's other things you can add as well. But if you add those things to a pickling brine. Uh, put them in the bottle of the jar when you're making your pickles. They keep the pickles from 
uh, going soft. They keep them nice and crunchy. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the uh, alchemy is there, but the point is it works, so why not go with it? Um, so anyway, the grapes have leaves, right? Even though all the leaves died, they seem to kind of, I'm not going to get any berries. I'm not going to get any any sort of yield from that plant this year in that regard, but normally the berries are all eaten by birds anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, apples, for some reason, in my garden this year in particular, uh, and it takes a number of years for trees to get established. I mean, I established that particular garden space in 2012 and 13, and uh, planted the tomato, uh, the uh, apple trees maybe 2013, 14, and it's 2018 now. And it looks like I'm going to get a half-decent yield of apples this year. Uh, we'll see. One of my trees in particular, the Northern Spy, has never made apples. And this year it's got apples, so I'm really curious to see how that works out. Another interesting berry plant, my blueberries. Uh, for whatever reason, despite the fact that I got a serious frost here in the middle of June, the blueberries are they were pretty much unaffected, even though they were flowering at the time. All my blueberries uh, have are fruiting in nicely and they look great. Um, the strawberries I pretty much lost the yield for late June, early July. I've got the odd one here or there, but that frost seemed to just damage the flowers. And uh, yeah, I should have covered them and so on, but you can't, you can't cover everything. And my goodness, in the middle of June, you just don't expect when when they say there's a frost warning, you just expect it's going to be something. Not too bad. You don't expect it's going to kill everything in your garden. Uh, I've never experienced that before. I mean, yes, if I was very on top of things, I should have discovered everything. Anyway, the strawberry plants survived just fine. The greens are fine. Uh, in, a, in a sense, it gave the plant a bit of a break, right? It didn't have to bother making flowers this year, so the foliage has really grown well. So the strawberry plants look nice and green and healthy. I just didn't get... Um, bowls and bowls and bowls of strawberries in early July like I normally do. I just have, you know, I go up my garden, I can pick a, a small bowl of strawberries on any given day to throw in a salad. So I've got the uh, ever-bearing variety of strawberries. But I'm anticipating a good yield in October because that particular kind of strawberry does that. It gives you a yield in late June, early July, and then intermittently all summer if it doesn't get too hot, and then you get a nice the biggest yield uh, from that particular variety. This is a seascape, but it's a ever-bearing. Sorry, no, not ever-bearing. Day neutral. Uh, gives you a good yield in October. Okay, so we've done a bit of a garden update, and I've just given you a bit of a walkthrough. And if you've been watching videos, that's, you know, I, I thought I'd go in a little bit more detail on that. Just for those that are curious, uh, it's always good to compare notes with other gardeners. Now, today... And overnight, we got an incredible rain. And we haven't really gotten rain here for a number of weeks. Uh, I left the province uh, before the 1st of July, and I was gone for a couple, you know, almost two weeks. And it really hasn't rained. Today, July 18th, is really the first real rain we've gotten in weeks. And, I mean, sure, we get, we, we've gotten a couple splashes here or there, and it's better than nothing. And there's people listening that are in drier places saying, well, you get mist and you get fog and you get all that sort of stuff. Yes, we do. And it's better than nothing. But uh, on those nights where, let's say it's a hot day and it's 30 degrees and it's sunny and everything's dry. And then in the evening, the fog rolls in and the mist rolls in. 
and it looks like it's going to rain, but it doesn't. Um, by 11 o'clock the next morning, um, it's dry. Not only that, but if you go out in the morning, uh, and I'm walking on my garden trails, and you kick some of the wood chips aside, the, the moisture hasn't gone into anything, right? The, the top inch of mulch is a little bit damp, but it's bone dry underneath that. There's just that little bit of moisture. It probably gets into your plants through contact with the foliage, but there's no real moisture getting down into the soil, into the roots, right? Whatever's moisture is in the soil is from the last, at least in my opinion, it's from the last real rain that you got. And it's just being conserved there um, by gravity and whatever mulch you have. And that's why it's so important to have a good mulch on. So today we got a serious rain, right? I would have, if I were to water my garden with a hose and try to get this amount of rain on my garden, I'd have to stand out there for hours because it rained all day, right? And it's still raining a bit and it's foggy outside. So there's no, it rained most of the day. And even right now, I don't know that it's raining. It's probably just a bit foggy, but there's no evaporation happening, right? It's just that all that moisture is really soaking in and it's it's swelling up the mulch that's on top of the soil it's going down into the uh, loamy soil it's going below all of that into the organic matter and, and all that sort of stuff that's in the soil and this is the the one day my garden's been waiting for to get a serious shot in the arm a real watering right i don't use drip hoses i don't use anything like that my my approach, and I didn't invent this. I'm just copying general permaculture approaches by, you know, this this idea, this approach to gardening has been around since the 70s. I did not invent any of this. I'm just flabbergasted when I go to a garden center and no one is putting this into practice when it makes so much sense. It works so well and it's so unbelievably cheap. You put the mulch down, and when you get that really good rain, your garden is actually able to hang on to that rain in a way that no other kind of gardening does. Right? If you've got the exposed earth, uh, either the water runs along the surface of the soil and just runs right off if you've got any sort of slope, or it does penetrate your soil, but as soon as there's some sunlight, it starts evaporating off immediately. When you've got that mulch on top, A, the mulch swells up so it holds extra water and some of that water will be delivered to your soil later on through just the force of gravity and I guess capillary action to some extent but B because you've got that mulch on top of the soil it's just not going to evaporate imagine let's pretend I've got two wet towels and sand a sandy beach and I throw one wet towel on the dry sand on the sandy beach I throw another wet towel on the sand on the sandy beach and I cover it with uh, three inches of grass clippings. Uh, which towel is going to dry out first? right? And which towel is going to take longer to dry? Imagine I've got those two towels and I pour a bucket of water on each of them. Um, I would imagine the one that has no grass clippings on top of it, on top of it after a number of, let's say after one whole day, I would predict that that towel would be dry, and if you lift it up, the soil underneath it would be dry. 
but the towel that's got some, let's say, three inches of grass clippings under it, let's uh, take a towel, I throw it on dry sand, I throw a bucket of water on the towel, and then I cover the whole thing with grass clippings. I would predict that after a full day in sun, uh, you take the grass clippings off, the towel's probably still wet to some extent, and when you lift the towel off, the soil underneath the towel is probably still wet. Right? That's why a mulch is so important. It's, it's insulative. Right? It, it blocks the sun, it insulates the heat, and it just has a way of maintaining the moisture levels. Not only that, but if you're using anything that's got a, a reasonable carbon-nitrogen mix, when that gets wet, and if it's a certain critical temperature outside, about, you know, if you have room temperature sort of thing, that mulch will create its own heat, right? It'll start breaking down. Next time you mow your lawn, rake up a bunch of grass and throw it in a bucket and just leave it in that bucket for four or five hours. Stick your hand in that bucket afterwards. It's going to be hot in there, right? All that nitrogen in, a, in an environment like that starts creating, it's generating its own heat because it's, it, the organisms that are present uh, in that matter start uh, breaking the nitrogen, breaking the plant matter down and it starts generating heat. So, I mean, the heat from the sun, all that baking, radioactive heat from the sun can be too much for a plant, but warming the soil to that nice optimal body temperature uh, sort of level this time of year for anything that's trying to grow this time of year is a great thing. It's it's like when you're trying to get your transplants going. I don't do transplants, but people that do transplants, they put these uh, heating pads underneath the transplant. Well, by having a decent mulch on your soil, especially if you've had a good rain, that mulch becomes like a heating pad. And it'll maintain the moisture level in the soil, but it'll also maintain the relative temperature of the soil. So the soil doesn't go through these swings in intensity, right, over the course of the evening and in the morning and so on and so forth. The soil temperature stays more stable, the moisture level stays more stable, and all of that benefits the organisms that live in the soil that are going about their business that are constantly improving the soil and increasing the number of nutrients that are available in that soil for your plants to take up. So, of course rain's good, but if you really want to take advantage of a good rain, and we just had one here, uh, get out there and get some mulch on everything. Don't leave anything bare. If you've been putting anything off, or if uh, one mulched area of your garden's gotten a bit thin, Right, the mulch has been worn down a bit and it's not like a good two or three inches and I, I would hold that as a relative standard. Get something on there. Anything. And some work better than others. I have noticed this year, uh, you know, I think seaweed's a wonderful mulch in a lot of ways. I think it adds a lot to the soil. But in terms of maintaining moisture levels, I put it probably at the bottom of mulches. I mean, if you're living in an area with lots of rain, it doesn't matter, <laughs> right? Uh, but I've noticed in my garden, the, the beds that are mulched with seaweed, uh, just because it, we've had like three weeks of no real rain, uh, the seedlings I've planted there, they just haven't amounted to much. Seaweed sort of, once it gets dry, the seaweed shrinks in size, and it loses its capacity to be a good mulch. 
so if, I think seaweed's good, but I think if you're going to use it, you should put some seaweed down and then put something over the seaweed that uh, is a little bit more dense and, and insulative and doesn't contract and expand to the same extent, like uh, grass clippings or, or hay or leaves, right? Those things sort of stay and can and make a good, uh, what would you call that, a good layering, right? A good covering. They make a better cover than seaweed. Uh, seaweed's got a lot of nutrient value to add to your soil, but I don't know that it makes a great, uh, an ideal, if it's all, it's all you've got, of course, use what you can get. But just comparing notes in my garden, I should do a video on this sometime soon. Uh, I don't know that it's the best thing for preserving moisture levels in your soil. It's good for other things, but I don't think it's the best for that. Anyway, just some thoughts and observations uh, this week, uh, July 18th, 2018. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please uh, share on social media, and if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, please do. And I want to thank you for your continued uh, listenership with this podcast. I'll keep it going as long as it appears, appears that I have an audience, and I appreciate that. Until next time, get out there, get at it, have fun in your garden, and thanks for listening.